Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of the 33 Fuel podcast. My name is Warren, I'm one of the co-founders here at 33 Fuel, and today on the show it gives me great pleasure to introduce Megan Bentley. Megan has a deep academic background in the worlds of sport, exercise, nutrition, health and lifestyle. Uh, having first picked up her degree in nutrition, health and lifestyle at Sheffield Hallam, she then moved on for a master's at Leeds Beckett University in sports and exercise nutrition. With this not being enough, she's now in the process of finalising her PhD, which in fact is being handed in the minute she finishes this podcast today. So history being made right here on the show. Um, the point is, Megan has a huge amount of knowledge, but knowledge on its own is not enough. It uh, doesn't matter how much you know about nutrition, uh, it matters what you do with it. And this is why this conversation with Megan is so interesting, because her PhD research, which as we already discovered is hot off the press today, going in for submission in approximately one hour's time, is all about how do you get professional athletes to not only understand what they should be doing, i.e. what sort of foods they should be eating, when they should be eating them, um, but beyond that understanding, how do you take them beyond the understanding to actually then carrying out the actions? Um, and this would seem like, well, it's not really a question, is it? They're professional athletes, they'll just do it. But no, uh, something Megan has uncovered and, and something that we have found at 33 Fuel in the number of uh, interactions and uh, business dealings we have with elite sport uh, teams, coaches and nutritionists is that knowledge really is only one part of the puzzle. Uh, elite athletes are as human as the rest of us. They like doing stuff, they don't like doing stuff and they're all different, they're human beings. So the human element comes into play. Of course, there will always be some athletes for whom nutrition is just simple. Um, it's something they're interested in, it's something they see a value in, it's something they want to do. Uh, but just like the rest of us, there are going to be others who find it a bit of a chore or don't quite get it or simply don't see why they should be bothered. Um, so Megan's work uh, is really pioneering a new field in matching the theory of nutrition uh, and the current best practice with the best practice that a lot of it already exists out there in other fields of academic study in how do you engender positive behaviour change. Um, you know, when you know something, uh, that's one thing, but you know that you really know it when you do it unconsciously, when your behavior changes. And so what Megan's really unlocking is how can athletes make those positive behavior changes? What are the best ways to get those positive behavior changes to happen so that um, the athletes are more compliant with regards to their nutrition? Now compliance here, that doesn't mean take away enjoyment, not at all, but it simply means being mindful of the value of what you eat and eating the right things at the right time. And this is just as applicable to um, amateur athletes at any level as it is elite athletes at any level, because what Megan's research really focuses on is the human element here. And that's common to all of us, whether you are looking to shave off tenths of a second for Olympic glory, or you're simply looking to beat your mate next time you go out running together, whatever it may be. So anyone who's looking to build more positive habits in their life, uh, this podcast has a huge amount of value for you. And as ever, it very closely ties to our mission here at 33 Fuel. 
which is to give athletes of all levels the best possible tools to take their performance, their health, their happiness, their speed and their strength to the next level to be the best they can be. And we do that by sharing great content like this uh, chat coming up with Megan here on our podcast, on our social channels, load of other content we share there through our blog on our website. There's tons of this stuff to get lost in. Um, but we also do it, of course, every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year without fail in store at 33fuel.com where we make and produce the best, most high performing natural sports nutrition you have ever had. Do check it out. That's at 33fuel.com. But before then, let's get stuck into engendering positive behavior change with Megan Bentley. Megan, thanks so much for making the time this morning to uh, come in and join me on the podcast. And really excited to just start digging into uh, some of your work because it's, and when we discussed before we started recording, uh, in our own journey as a company and personally on, on the elite side of sports nutrition, we see a lot of clarity around uh, best practice for uh, what uh, macronutrients people should be using, periodization, what, food, you know, what foods they should be eating, how these things should be put together. Um, but the key issue across all sports athletes is compliance. And that, that applies to amateurs as well as uh, professionals. It doesn't matter what you know, it matters that you're able to apply it. And it sounds like your research really gets to the heart of how do you start to improve compliance and, and unpick that barrier and set out a strategy of best practice that can allow people to achieve the nutrition they want to. I mean, um, that's a quick summary, but is that sort of accurate on, on where you're at and where, where you come to this, this subject from? Yeah, no, definitely. You've uh, really hit the nail on the head there and provided a, a great summary. So thanks for that. And yeah, I just wanted to say it's a really great opportunity to speak to you today because um, I'm just coming to the end of my PhD journey, actually. So um, I'm actually uh, hoping to submit my uh, PhD after I get off the phone call with you today. So that's a big, a big landmark that, you know, obviously I'm really excited about, about and I hopefully will be able to celebrate uh, with my partner over the weekend. Um, so yeah, no, I'm sure, you know, the listeners would be, you know, those who very much interested in sports nutrition and uh, would be kind of very much aware that you know if they're doing a bit of reading around the topic you know we're very good in the field at trying to you know conduct research to understand you know, those, those nutritional recommendations you know as you said how many grams of carbohydrates proteins and fats you know we should be consuming whether that's throughout the day or pre during post exercise uh, but then actually you know how we deliver that information as practitioners um, is is not necessarily as, as well researched uh, and essentially that's you know when you're working in a high performance environment when you're working with athletes out on the field you know how do you you know work with them and deliver that information to bring about a positive behavior change uh, and that's and then when we start to talk about behavior change it is touching upon on psychology and um, unfortunately uh, the sports nutrition field hasn't really acknowledged that side of the the research um, as yet um, and know the first study for my um, for my PhD did quite an extensive systematic review that looked into you know how are we applying these sports nutrition behavior change or well, behavior change principles sorry in in sports nutrition and and the kind of short answer is you know we're not um, we're not 
there's a real lack of evidence-informed approaches to designing our nutritional service um, through the behaviour change lens and applying those principles of behaviour change, which, you know, which hopefully we can touch on and I can share those principles uh, with you today. Um, and it's, to, you know, that, that's not to say necessarily, you know, as practitioners out in the field, you know, they're not doing a good job. Uh, because I, I've had the pleasure of working with, you know, amazing practitioners, um, with, you know, within my role at the English Institute of Sport, and, I, and I'm learning, and I've learned so much from them. Um, but what, what, by not applying um, behaviour change science or behavioural science, as I, I like to call it, is, you know, we're limiting the um, opportunities that we have to be successful at bringing about change. So we're relying on kind of the good characteristics or good skills that we bring as a practitioner, whereas if we draw on uh, the science of of behaviour change, um, we can increase that probability and that chance of um, bringing about having a positive influence and making those positive behaviour changes that that we want to see. And as I said, there's probably multiple reasons why we're not doing that. It's uh, you know lack of exposure to uh, you know psychology behaviour change as a part of our our training as sports nutritionists, but also you know. There's and from my experience, you know, when we talk about applying behaviour change, you know, it does mean drawing upon some form of theory of behaviour. And you know, throughout my undergrad, there was we were exposed to a lot of theories, um, but I never really seemed to connected well with them. Uh, that really, I didn't think be considered to be something that I could perhaps apply within my role. Um, so it's just yeah, uh, you know, being able to implement that behavioural science is a bit, kind of a big gap a gap there as well um so yeah overall my phd is to try and um use behavioral science to understand the dietary behaviors of elite athletes so we can um improve and enhance the professional practice of sports and exercise nutritionists so just to be kind of quite transparent on that like my PhD wasn't necessarily to go into a particular sport you know apply these principles of behavior change and then design an intervention and it was actually trying to look at it a little bit more broadly and more systemically and think about actually how can we um, have a greater reach and start to improve you know the professional practice of colleagues that I work with within the EIS and how can they start to think about that and apply that with in their role um, so then they can have a bigger influence on uh, across the sports and across many athletes that that they're work, working with um, and I've been very uh, fortunate to uh, study a topic that I you know very passionate about because it does involve you know working with people and hearing people's experiences because um, you know it has been predominantly qualitative research in that sense. And the, I mean, you talk about that reach uh, and the EIS and you did mention it earlier English Institute of Sport I mean they are effectively uh, a body that provides expert assistance to predominantly Olympic sports. Is it is it solely Olympic sports or is, or is it other national sports as well? Yeah, good question. It's Olympic and Paralympic sports uh, predominantly because uh, the EIS are lottery funded by UK Sport. Um, but there are some... They are some professional sports that we do offer services to as part of the organisation, but not as many as they used to because they've uh, kind of tried to streamline their support a little bit more just to focus on you know where the funding's coming from and that's to support those olympic and, and, and paralympic sports yeah but i mean yeah so, so to i mean you're you're quite modest there talking about the the potential reach and, and getting this through but because I, I believe your your phd is part sponsored by the eis uh you've been working closely with them and with other practitioners there so this is work that is 
coming very much, you know, you, you've got the theory, you've got the practical, but it's coming out into the real world. And this is directly available across all Olympic sports. So, that, you know, you, that, that's a major uh, impact that this can have already. But what I really like is the way that, um, I mean, there's hundreds of quotes on the subject, whether it's, I don't remember who said it, but talking about war, you know, no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, boxing, Mike Tyson is, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Um, you know, in sports nutrition, you can have the best plan in the world, um, the perfect plan for the athlete. But if the athlete doesn't like the food, or if for some reason you're asking to, them to eat at a time of day when they just never do, or if you're asking them mm. to make, cook when they've never cooked, well, I'm taking extremes here, but that plan's useless. And your research, I mean, it seems so obvious when you lay mm. it out like that. Your research starts to unpick and bridge that gap. And it's quite incredible that with the amount of sports nutrition knowledge that has been done, that this is the first time this has really been studied. I mean, it sounds like there's there's huge potential in there to, you know, without the compliance, the theory is nothing. And, and that's as, that goes as well, I say, for, for an amateur athlete or a professional athlete, it's not what you know, it's what you do. Yes, definitely. And uh, that's, you know, why our PhD was <clears throat> was started three years back. Um, head of service, Kevin Corral at the time of the English Institute of Sport, you know, he was really pleased the fact that he developed this big sports um, nutrition team. I think it started in 2002 with just, you know, two of them, three of them. Uh, and now we've got a, a big army of us, you know, 23 of us working across multiple sports. Um, and he was saying, you know, I built a really good team. They've got, you know, good knowledge, um, but, you know, good accreditation through undergrad and, and master's programs um, and we're you know we're designing these individualized tailored meal plans dietary plans for our elite athletes but you know sometimes they're still not following them um, why is that um, so you know you approached um, Sue Backhouse uh, at Leeds Beckett University which is who, who my PhD is partnered uh, with based at you know in the Carnegie School of Sport up at Leeds Beckett <clears throat> and then we start to you know develop the uh, the research program and, and put a proposal together so yeah that's how it uh, initially started but when we talk about I suppose think about behavioral change you know as a topic it, it's not new uh, it's you know well researched within health psychology and um, yeah health psychology and kind of public health nutrition I'd kind of say and physical activity you know it's really really well researched um, within those areas um, and they're, they're, they've got they've come a, a long way but, you know, I'd say sports nutrition um, as a discipline, you know, is still relatively new. And we're, we're still trying to work out what are the nutritional recommendations that our athletes should be consuming. You know, we're still trying to understand that because, you know, typically a lot of the research is done either in runners, in cyclists, less research done, you know, in team based sports. So, um, you know, I think we're putting a lot of our energy in that side of things and then because of that we've overlooked and um, haven't expanded um, thinking about you know how can we be doing research to help those practitioners as well actually implement that um, within their roles. So um, on the uh, from from what you've learned over the, over the course of your PhD and uh, quite amazing I love it that today is actually the day you're submitting it this is <laughs> this is this is as hot of the press as it gets it's not actually on the press yet um so i mean what are the the main uh, barriers pain points or uh, 
compliance issues that you were finding between right here's the great here's your great nutrition plan why is the athlete not responding the way the way we would like you know why is the person not mm. fully fully going for this what what were the big, biggest barriers or the main things that you, you saw in there yeah, no, really great question. And um, oh yeah, first, first of all, I just want to start off by saying it was really interesting because I started telling people that I was doing this type of research. You know, the response I was I got was quite quite interesting. That people would say, um, "Oh, well, surely behaviour change isn't a problem with elite athletes. Surely they, you know, they do what they sh- they know they should do, and they have access to nutritionists to be able to do that." You know, and I think people think that because an athlete is motivated by performance, it's going to be really good. But what my research has found is actually there's some really unique challenges within the high performance environment itself that present as barriers to following these nutritional recommendations. Um, So I'll kind of take you through the key ones that I found when I spoke to the athletes themselves. So as part of my qualitative research, um, I conducted focus groups of, you know, up to 40 athletes across multiple sports, you know, majority of, with, of which have been to, you know, Olympic Games, um, won medals. Um, I, I spoke to some professional sport athletes as well, um, you know, professional sports, meaning like, you know, your rugby and football. They played for, you know, first teams in Premier Leagues. Um, so, yeah, what, one of the kind of key barriers that they, they spoke about was uh, around their ability to uh, food plan and prepare their own meals. So, that you know, food planning. Um, so part of uh, our behaviour, we need to have the capability to, if we're wanting to follow nutritional recommendations, we need to be able to plan and prepare our own, our own meals. And it was interesting because the athletes, you know, really, sometimes was really struggle with that. Um, and there was multiple things going on with that bit, I suppose. It was more, you know, don't get it wrong, some athletes really enjoyed, you know, planning. Um, it made them feel really structured and organised, whereas other athletes, you know, they found they could get a little bit obsessive about it um, and therefore they preferred not to do it because they would focus too much on that detail, um, you know, wanting to hit specific numbers, um, you know, and causing a bit of anxiety around their food choices if they perhaps to exceed that or go, or go beyond that. So they would disengage. Um, and again, that's you know helpful for us as practitioners when you're working with people to understand, you know, is that as an approach going to be helpful and, and how to manage that. But uh, um, also some athletes shared that they actually um, just preferred not to food plan. They, prefer, they preferred other people to do it for them. So they didn't really have an intention to do much planning. So this made us really think about, you know, within the high performance environment, um, how do we set up uh, that environment? that can perhaps uh, really hinder athletes developing those fundamental skills that we know are important to follow in nutritional recommendations. So if we're a sport that provides, you know, a lot for our athletes, take away that decision making and um, that can actually prevent um, cause barriers in, in the longer term because they're not, if you think about it, you know, in sport, we practice particular skills, so we become good at them, and we, we're confident that we're able to do them, right? So if we're not allowing athletes to practice, you know, planning and preparing their own meals, you know, they're not going to have that skill to do that. So when they're taken away from that high-performance environment, we're kind of left with athletes that perhaps, you know, aren't independent to do that in, uh, for themselves. Um, so for me, I know a lot of my research, and I'll hopefully touch upon, um, has really changed my the philosophy to my practice and how I like to uh, work as a, uh, a, a practitioner um, but yeah so that was a bit around capability and, and, and food planning was a bit a kind of a key barrier but also um, a motivation so we all know that athletes are really motivated to perform so mo- performance was seem to be this like carrot that really that really motivated them to follow the nutritional guidelines but actually that 
being motivated by performance can be quite a burden and it can be quite a high, high pressure. And therefore, sustaining that for a long period of time can become quite challenging. So because of that, it would then cause them to want to not adhere, to have that break from the performance environment. So athletes shared dietary behaviours particularly, where they'd be really, really re- restrained um, in their eating leading up to a competition. But then what we'd see post-competition is, you know, binge eating um, behaviours. Um, so it was kind of managing the, yes, see, it's almost describing it as a double-edged sword. So it can be positive being motivated by performance but it can also can also be negative in that sense as well um and then and then also athletes seem to really um value being um looking athletic that was considered to be an important part of their athletic identity so feeling that they have to look like they're an athlete you know being lean or being skinny in particular sports um you know thinking that link links to importance to their their performance and now what we really found is actually you know they're things that are, are, the, are, the athlete is driven by so they're driven by their own performance they're driven by you know the body image and, and, and looking athletic but these seem to be really reinforced by the high performance environment um because those types of behaviors can actually have a maladaptive effect on our nutritional intake if they're overdone and um, because we're fo- focusing so much on the outcome on the performance or body composition and we'll do anything to get there even if that means having poor dietary practices um and and that reinforcement in the high performance environment was was really interesting because you know in high performance sport, we know we, we monitor body composition quite routinely. So that's reinforcing that. That look athletic is important. Um, also, athletes shared, you know, they would get comments from their coaches around how they looked. And equally, you know, some some athletes, you know, they, they wanted to get that comment from their coach that made them feel good um, as an influential person within their sport. Um, and they also, some athletes, you know, also, you know, like to use body composition because it was um, you know, a way to self-monitor and provide feedback. But as I said, for other athletes, you know, it, it could be quite the other end and be quite a disadvantage to what, you know, you're trying to achieve as, um, as a sports nutritionist. Uh, so, yeah. No, it, it's, so, it's... I could really... I could go on for ages, so I'll let you... No, this is brilliant. I, I love the, the, the first point there, that it, it is partly it's cultural, partly it's our media... Um, and, and partly it is the fact that you know elite athletes at, at any level, they are doing something. I, I'm not going to say unique because, you know, but incredibly special that most people cannot do. You know, they they yeah sure you you, you can run a marathon or whatever, but can you run a marathon in two oh one or or sub two? Well, that's you're in a very rare atmosphere. By the time you've got the person who not only has had the you know they've got the genetics to be able to do that they've got the opportunity to be able to do that they've got the motivation to be able to do that and they've been able to thrive through a structure which is not easy to rise to the top of that game those people do they are on some sort of a pedestal but it's easy to think both in terms of ability and behavior that those people they are different they are special well I could never be like that because I'm not that special person um, whereas what they do is special, it's great to see, you know, these are human beings. Uh, and these are human beings who face mm-hmm. the same challenges that anyone faces, whether it's wanting to lose a bit of weight, wanting to gain a bit of muscle, wanting to achieve a certain physical goal. You know, actually, they, you know, 
I love that point that they are not just, you know, well, I'm an elite athlete, therefore you know, compliance is everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they face exactly those same yep. challenges, but almost on a simpler level in some respect. Okay, so they're not trying to get the kids to school and, you know, manage what the kids want to eat and try and look after their own diet, which might be different. But they might not even know how to cook, you know, because it's just not happened. And yeah. To overlook that point, it's again, it seems so obvious, but how do you get good at something? You practice it. I mean, my cooking at university was shocking. And, you know, if I knew a fraction of what I know now, I could have spent half the amount on food and eaten three times as well at university. Mm. But I had no knowledge. And, you know, if you're an 18-year-old, 19-year-old athlete, well, what is your knowledge in that space? So starting to break those things down. But then, you're right, it becomes you've got body composition, you've got body image, and also the fact that there is such a focus on it, you know. You, yeah. are, you are going to be weighed. You are going to, you know, do do a skinfold test once a week as a professional athlete or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are over on a certain point, it's not unheard of for clubs and places to uh, have what they would gen- gently call a fat club, whereby it's like, okay, you're over your markers. You need to get in in early and do extra at mm-hmm. cardio or whatever. And the psychological pressures of that are huge. Now, what it opens up to me, and and I. I think this is why your research is so fascinating, is how do you even begin to build a model that manages so many conflicting emotional, psychological, and performance-based inputs in order to achieve the same result when every athlete and every sport is literally individual? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, so I mean, how, how do you... Was there a point where you were looking at this and saying, well, this is actually too complicated, you know? <laughs> But I mean, or on the other hand, does it help that, okay, so this hasn't been done in sports nutrition, but there is a lot of existing study and uh, research around behavior change and, and, you know, psychological behavior change? Yeah, and if I could just talk about my like personal experience, you know, first of all, and what I kind of really took from, you know, those key findings that I've just shared with you now is, um, you know, it's just thinking about my role in perhaps reinforcing that, you know, performance driver and the impact that's having on the athlete. So, you know, in the, in the um, high performance sport, we very much use the terminology performance nutritionist. And, and uh, I don't know, over time, I just grew a little bit in, increasingly uncomfortable with using performance nutritionist as my title because, you know, it only really encompassed half of half of my role because, you know, we know that the health and well-being of our athletes you know, can, is important and it's, you know, my duty of care to pr- help support them with that. And, you know, if you want to link it back to performance, you know, if the athlete's ill or injured, they're, you know, they're going to, so it's also going to impact on their performance. So, you know, I've, I've started to really think about, you know, how I present myself. Um, and I've, you know, now decided to check, go back to, you know, the, the topic that I studied, which was sports nutrition. So sports nutritionist, because I felt like, you know, performance nutritionist was quite perpetuating that performance driven mindset. Um, and we need to look at it a little bit more holistically than that. As you said, athletes are people, they're humans first, and they actually really value the recognition that if you're a practitioner and recognising that and putting them, you know, as people first and, you know, acknowledging that they, you know, they're all exposed to, you know, a range of barriers as as you and I are, you know. Um, But also as well, I think, you know, measuring body composition is always going to be a part of high performance sport. But I think as practitioners, it's our job of how we manage that and how we deliver that to our athletes. And, you know, 
I've been fortunate enough to work alongside an amazing practitioner um, and I hope she won't mind mentioning her, Emma Gardner. Um, and she's very good at managing this with athletes and saying, you know, we can't focus on the outcome, body composition. You know, we actually, our goal is to focus on the process. Okay, so what we what we want to see is getting good dietary habits habits in place, focusing on, on your nutrition, getting consistency with your fueling and recovering um, around your training, which sometimes might mean eating more for athletes to get their head around. So that is actually, you know, you need to eat more to get a better body comp result. Um, so really focusing on that process, the process. And, the, you know, if we focus on the process, that is the goal. Then, the, you know, the skin folds, the body comp, then they will look after themselves Doing it in the reverse, however, is when things can come a little bit sticky and a little bit messy. And as I said, best practitioners I know are really able to communicate that with their athletes and, and take them on that journey that we are focusing on um, the behaviour and getting consistency with your nutrition um, rather than uh, focusing on um, on body composition, uh, body composition assessments. That's, um, that's really nice to see. So I, I just wanted to unpack pick that yeah. a little further because it's it's a deceptively simple point. When you are, whether you're an elite athlete um, and, you know, you're going to get a weekly body composition test or you are um, an amateur athlete and you're looking to achieve a time goal, a race goal, a weight goal, whatever it might be, it's very easy to focus on that race finish line or that weight number. Um, in the athlete's case, it's very easy to get focused on the skinfold test. I must get a good result, you know, mm -hmm. or, or, or the weight test or whatever it may be. And actually, if I've understood what you said correctly, you're saying that it's a much more positive approach. Focus on the process. Ignore the end result. Because mm -hmm. if you focus on the process and enjoy it, the end result will look after itself. Therefore, the skinfold test or the, you know, for the professional or the... Uh, weight, you know, jumping on the scales for the amateur becomes simply a part of the thing you do and you're in the right place when you get there because you followed the process. Is, is, is that is that right? Because it was just, it felt like such a simple point but something that makes such a big difference. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just kind of thinking back to, you know, if you focus on the outcome, you're missing all the steps that are required to get you, to get yourself there in a good state. So let's focus on on uh, getting those behaviours right, because in the outcome, as I said, you know that that should that should look after ourselves. If you, self, if you focus on the outcome, you're not considering, you know, the, the important things to get yourself there, and it, and then you're willing to do anything to get there. So whether that's you know following un, um, unhealthy dietary practices, restricting your energy intake, you know, not recovering after your session because you're so solely focused on you know getting that better result. Um, but actually, the focus should be on making sure that you're eating adequate amount of carbohydrates, proteins, you know, fueling for sessions, fueling during sessions. Um, so let's focus on that because that's what's going to give you the best outcomes and enhance your ability um, to get those training adaptations. And, and presumably as well by focusing it on that, that process rather than being so totally focused on on the one one or two goals it's a healthier approach mentally and mm -hmm. holistically in the like you said if you're so focused on hitting a, a weight goal or, or whatever it may be that you don't fuel after a session you're compromising your health you're compromising your performance you're compromising the longevity as a professional athlete of your career mm -hmm. 
um, particularly if that becomes habitual. Also, the psychological thing, if you're so focused on, on that, that body shape number or whatever it may be the whole time, that could presumably, I mean, the, the fine line between performance and eating disorder in certain sports must be a difficult one to tread. And this sounds like a, a, a strong uh, method mm-hmm. of keeping yourself on the right side of that balance too. Would, yeah. would that be right? Yeah, definitely. I think, but the challenge, as I said, yeah, as I said, the challenge in sport as a practitioner is, you know, you're going to have influential leaders, people in uh, powerful positions, managers, coaches that are really pushing this body comp agenda. Um, and I think it's very difficult for a new practitioner coming into a sport with, you know, lack of experience to actually, you know, have that conversation and, you know, try and steer that focus away a little bit from someone who is, you know, your manager. Um, so I think, you know, important skill you know, other practitioners to be able to, you know, be able to have those difficult conversations with the coach. If that's not something that they agree with, it's not something a part of their philosophy and, and the way that they work, um, you know, which, which can be a challenge. And why, you know, kind of message from my research is I think it's really important that we put in support systems in place for new sports nutritionists who are starting to work in sports who can feel that they have the support to be able to, you know, challenge uh, issues of poor practice, essentially. That That's another, I mean, these are such strong things that appear to be coming out of all this and it makes perfect sense because there are uh, entrenched ways of doing things and a lot of them are entrenched because they're very good and they're proven. But at the same time, some of those can become inappropriate or unhealthy. Um, and I'd never thought of it that way. You know, For a newer practitioner, uh, the same way for a younger athlete, it can be hard or uncomfortable um, to want to or consider contradicting that authority figure who's Mm. above you particularly when you're earlier in your career and you know sometimes it's a question of getting your head down and getting on with it because it needs to be done but at other times if particularly research and past results are showing that well actually you know behaving in this way is ultimately a potentially has a risk of being damaging you need to be able to speak out and change that so that's another great point Mm. Yeah, but sorry, going back to your question, did you ask me about um, uh, integrating a model or trying to, you know, develop um, kind of interventions to support paper change in sport nutrition? Was that your original question, sorry? Well, it, that, well it, it's almost like you've just read my mind because really what, what we've been digging into here is the the barriers and the learnings and, you know, the, the things that you've found. But I, I think you're exactly right that the next step from here is, well, based on, on those learnings, you know, what are... The, the sort of key areas that you think people should be focusing on in order to achieve those positive results through strong processes and you know a, a healthy way to achieve achieve compliance in in what is a complex human environment yeah definitely and if I could start off by maybe trying to explain the the basic principles of behavior change and if that would be helpful at this stage mm. um so kind of how I like to describe it to people in in a really simple way hopefully is um there's kind of three processes to uh behavior change uh, and one is really one is really important but often missed out so we have um so in sports nutrition we have so the, th- the three processes are influences the behavior itself outcome Mm-hmm. Um, so the result of uh, following that, performing that behaviour. So in sports nutrition, if we take outcomes first of all, so in sport nutrition, we we know and we're very consistent in our message that nutrition can impact you know three key comp- 
components of performance. So it can enhance our training adaptations, um, measured perhaps potentially through body composition and getting stronger. Um, it can reduce our risk of injury and illness um, and therefore allow us more time to train to get those training adaptations. Um, and it can, you know, maximise our, our uh, performance, you know, on that day, on race day, on competition day. So they're kind of the outcomes um, of a behaviour. And then as we touched upon early, earlier on, we know because of the body of research in sports nutrition, the types of behaviours that our athletes should be uh, performing to to get those types of outcomes, you know, whether that's eating five to seven portions of fruit and vegetables a day, um, consuming creatine, for example, um, if your outcome is to increase, you know, lean mass. Uh, other behaviours may include, you know, having a high protein, high protein meals regularly throughout the day. Um, and in, in sport nutrition, we're very good at understanding and unpicking those uh, and exploring those as part of our practice. So the behaviours and the outcomes. But then actually the the, the third one, so the influencers, these are the things that uh, are either barriers or enablers to that behaviour. So what is stopping the athlete from performing that behaviour, whether it be um, fueling for a, a long ride or, you know, having five to seven portions of fruit, fruit and vegetable a day. So it is, in fact, those influencers that as a practitioner um, or as an, an individual yourself, that's what you should be targeting in order to bring about um, the change in the behaviour. So if we first of all need to really understand those influences, um, so we're, you know, we're really targeting the right things if we're trying to change people's behaviour. Um, and it's interesting because in uh, behavioural science, they, they kind of say the reason why many behaviour change efforts fail at the first attempt is people miss that vital step in understanding those influences. So they jump straight to... Um, an intervention they see a behavioral problem okay he's not doing this um let's just provide them with education for example um, and they call that um the isligat approach you know it seemed like a good idea at the time um, and we see it in sport all the time by coaches by practitioners um sometimes you know they uh, assume oh the athlete isn't engaging in, in that in that physio treatment or isn't following their you know hydration recommendations protocol um they, they must they have must, must have a really bad attitude they know they're not motivated you know and actually in fact you know it might be it might be something completely different um and therefore we're targeting the wrong thing and therefore reducing our chances that we're going to be successful at changing that um so i think as practitioners you know we need to be asking the right questions to explore those influences um and then to do that you kind of therefore need to have a bit of an understanding of of human behavior and those factors so you are asking the right questions in the right way but then equally, you need the athlete to be quite open and honest about those factors that are influencing their, their behaviour. So that's another component. And um, in sport, you know, that, that's one of our challenges is, you know, you can have limited time with the athlete uh, to get to know them. That can be a barrier for us as practitioners. Um, so to really unearth those barriers, to really get to the roots of what's going on, um, that can be difficult. But then, it, but then also what I think we battle with this sport is, you know, especially maybe team-based sports is the athlete is looking to get selected for that, for that team and that squad. So do they necessarily always want to expose things to you that might put them um, at disadvantage to being selected? So this is where, and again, best practitioners I know do this really well as, you know, early on, it's really building the relationship and, um, making it very clear to the athlete that you're there to support them and you're there to help them 
give themselves the best chance of getting selected. You're not necessarily there to, you know, go and tell the coach or the manager what they're not doing or what they should be doing. You know, you're there to support them. And equally, you know, the best athletes I know as well will will utilise the support team around them really, really well. Uh, they'll recognise their own barriers and, and they'll approach people uh, that they need around them to, to help support that as well. Um, so, so, yeah, so... I was, yeah, I was just going to go because of because of the you know the, the processes to to behaviour change that uh, I went I went through, um, and then recognising from my first study that you know as sports nutritionists and sports nutrition field we're not implementing behavioural science. The, the, the final stage of my PhD, um, I developed a sports nutrition behavioural assessment tool, um, and this is simply you know, going through the model of behaviour change that I've used um, and to help just guide practitioners to understand, you know, the complexity around behaviour and recognising, you know, it is going to be individual to each athlete. Um, so getting them to recognise, you know, it's more than just knowledge and skill. We, you know, we sit in a complex system influenced by the social and the high performance environment, as well as these motivational factors as well which perhaps typically not as well clued up about. So how can we start to explore those? So this behavioural assessment tool guides practitioners to explore those those factors. Um, you know, and it's a tool very much um, in its infancy, and I hope it will continue to de develop and grow. And the practitioner can rag rate each, each item to see, you know, how the athlete is getting on with each of those components. And then it signposts practitioner um, to a range of uh, behaviour change techniques um, so there's a whole body of research out there that talks about these behaviour change techniques. So that tool's there to expose practitioners to these and, and give them essentially more tools to add to their, their toolkit. Um, and I'm really proud of, of that tool because, you know, already um, through involvement in my research, um, of colleagues at the uh, EIS, you know, it's it's starting to think about and, and shift. You know, how can they start to implement that within their practice? And um, and it's and it's already being used in, in multiple sports, as I said, which I you know is great. And that was the intention of my PhD. So I'm really really pleased that it's come to that. And I I hope that um and I'm also I'm also working with other sports um at the moment um, to help them review their current screening process. So as I said at the moment, they're very good at assessing those behaviours. Okay, what are athletes currently doing behaviourally with their nutrition? You know, are they drinking a lot of alcohol? Are they, have they got a low port, uh, fruit and vegetable intake? Um, and then also understanding those outcomes. But how can we start to implement within their screening tools um, and profile of athletes? How can we um, be assessing and exploring those influences um, and, asking those types of uh, questions um, to inform our, our service as well. Um, and, you know, overall delivered a more tailored and targeted approach um, to the athletes that we're working with. Uh, it, it's very interesting, that whole, that landscape and, and the processes that you're, you're now building around it. Um, I mean, I, I guess the things I'd really like to go into here are, are twofold. One is... Uh, in the professional sports space, you've identified, you know, there are influences and these are things that may stop an athlete from complying, whatever they are. There are also things that may naturally be, um, let's just say things the athlete is less comfortable or necessarily ready to talk about or willing to talk about. So there's an approach needed there by the coaching staff to be able to uh, find those answers in order to be able to address it. So. I guess my, my first question around those would be in a, in a general sense and, and looking more to a, a lay audience, um, they can't 
uh, they won't, they're not going to have a practitioner looking at these influences for them, but are there any ways that people can consider their own behavior to maybe unearth some of their own barriers to, to their own behavior changes that they want to make nutritionally or otherwise? So yeah, no, really, really great question. And I think it's a really interesting time for us during lockdown, isn't it? Because um, I think a lot of us have had um, a bit more time to stop and reflect and um, and perhaps do things we otherwise would normally not have time to do. So yeah, great time for uh, athletes uh, to self-reflect, you know, if there is um, something that they're really struggling with or something that they want to change. Um, I know there's something that we can also want to change, you know, whether that's getting more sleep or drinking less alcohol or eating more fruit and veg. Um, so there's kind of, to unpick it, I would kind of explore as part of this self-reflection, um, three areas really. So do I have the capability to do this behaviour? Um, do I have the opportunity to do it? Um, are things that are external to me that can support me? And then finally, am I motivated to do this behaviour? So if we take capability first is mainly um will explore your knowledge um, and skill as well to do this behavior that you perhaps want to want to achieve so knowledge wise you know um so let's take an example of if i want to start fueling for my rides my long rides on a sun on a sunday or whenever that whenever that is so do i know do i know uh, how many grams of carbohydrates i need to consume um each hour do I know how to achieve that through food examples? You know, whether that's gels or you know food that you're going to make. Um, and then do I? And then the skill component is around. You know, am I able to make that food? Uh, if if you're wanting to take, to take something home cooked, like rice cakes, for example, do I have the skills to to prepare that? Um, so that's the capability bit. And the motivation. Um, I'll take opportunity next. So, do I have? Uh, the support from other people around me, what my kind of social influence is like. Uh, when I'm on the ride, do my my training buddies do they do they stop to fuel? Do they fuel as well? Is that having a positive or negative influence on perhaps what I do? Um, so looking at kind of more cultural stuff there, which I, I'm I'm really fascinated by. Um, I know kind of in cycling, it's a very big culture to stop and uh, have a cake and coffee uh, uh, mid-ride um, and then another part of opportunity is around looking at like the environment so you know are you taking snacks with you um, to enable that behavior so your resources to do so uh, food access access availability you know whether that's be taking uh, one of your products Warren on the ride with them or whether else they're taking their own kind of rice cakes um, so that's in to increase the likelihood that they would do it of course um, and then also maybe is there opportunities to stop or you're able to do it on the ride itself um, and then the final one then is thinking about you know because if you, if you do have that you think you have the capability you've got good knowledge skill and you've got the opportunity and, and then do is it perhaps a motivational thing maybe and and, and with motivation kind of the split it in so yeah motivation is like more how important do you think that behavior is you know is it a priority to you do you think it's going to benefit you in some way um or perhaps not you know these things influence our, our motivation um and as a, as a self-reflection piece um you know the athlete can you, know, you can explore um you know using a rag rag rating zero to zero to ten you know how important is it to you right now that you do that that you do this behavior and if you're scoring maybe like a five or less, then 
probably got a little bit of work to do there. You're not, you're not, not seeing it as being important. Um, and, you know, explore with that then to look at, um, you know, it's difficult to necessarily change people's values at that time, but there's bit, bits we can do um, to shift those values and challenge those values. So is it that we need to perhaps uh, have a bit more education around the consequences of, of doing or, or not doing this behaviour? Are we fully aware of that so that we are, you know, able to make them informed decisions of how important we think it is to us right now and, and what we're trying to achieve? Um, and then another, another bit to motivation is, um, is around our confidence to be able to do this behaviour as well. So, again, you could use a, a RAG rating uh, system, zero to 10. Um, how confident are you that you're able to do this behavior? And again, if it's probably maybe um, less than a seven, six, seven, and not, probably not feeling at that confident. And, and this is where uh, setting small goals uh, for yourself is, is really important because what builds confidence is previous accomplishments. So the idea that we've done this behavior before and therefore we can do it, we can do it. Um, so that's why, you know, small goals is a big one. And we say uh, one percent change at a time. So um, trying to I think trying to change too much is where people can perhaps potentially go a bit uh, go a bit wrong or also like escalating the goal too quickly as well. Um, so setting up setting up small goals um, to build our confidence and therefore motivation to do it because as humans you know we we hate failure <laughs> we we don't like to fail at things so if we set ourselves a big goal and we don't achieve it then we think oh I'm a rubbish human I can't do it I'm not gonna not gonna gauge because it creates this cognitive dissonance which makes us feel uncomfortable so that that decreases our motivation and um, so yeah as I said it's really important why we kind of build our goals uh, small and um, start small and build them up because it's all about building that habit um, and we also talk about like if then rules as well so if for example you know you're not able to fuel for that ride um, you know for whatever reasons you know life get, does get in the way then I will make sure I have an adequate recovery um, snack shake rather smoothie rather than um, waiting, you know, for my next meal, which might be two two hours later or whatever. Um, so yeah, building those if and if then rules um, for times when perhaps you're not able to meet the goals that, that you set. I, I like that that whole framework of again, it's it's a similar to one of your earlier points. It, it's a deceptively simple thing, but no one's really looking at it and it creates a huge difference. So, you know, you're trying to achieve goal X, it's easy to focus on the goal. But unless you do have the means to do it, the desire to do it, and the understanding to do it, well, you know, unless you've got those three pillars, you, you can't really affect that change. And there may be in some cases with people that they find that, actually, I, I don't really want to do this. I'm only doing it because I think I should. Now, in, in the professional sporting environment, that's where things may be slightly different, but it could even be that. There, you know, I'm sure there are athletes who just think, well, there can be a fear of change. Why, why would I change something when I'm doing so well already? Yeah. Particularly in aerobic sports and, and most physical sports, the career is short. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of people behind you if, if you're not gonna, you know, if you're not gonna be there at the right time. So there can be a fear around change yeah. as well, I imagine, that's, that's difficult to manage at the elite level. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, they don't believe that that change is going to benefit them because, you know, why would they if they what they're doing now is working? 
and that's okay. Um, and it's interesting you touch upon fear, you know, because as part of my research, we one of the key barriers was athletes' emotions. And, you know, and we, we are, we're aware from personal experience or just knowledge about the general population that are how we feel um, influences our behaviour massively. But I don't think it's as recognised within within sport. And what's really interesting is, again, linking to performance, being so motivated by performance. That is what influences, has a knock-on effect on our emotions and, and how we feel, which then can cause positive or maladaptive dietary behaviors so you know feelings of like intense emotions um like anxiety worry um so during an injury for an athlete can be a really challenging time um and that can you know you know because athletes shared you know that they're you know they're not training therefore they don't deserve to eat and they feel guilty about eating you know that's a really challenging one Um, and therefore you know of course that affects their recovery but equally, you know, athletes shared that if they are performing really well, um, then they're really motivated uh, to follow the nutritional recommendations. But yet when things aren't going well, you know, think, oh, well, what's the point? Um, performance isn't going well. I'm not training really well. But why, why bother with my nutrition as well? Um, so that's really interesting. Which, again, presumably comes back to a focus on the process, not the outcome. Because clearly when you put it out so starkly like that, the time you most need to be focusing on all the things you can control, i.e. Yes. nutrition, sleep, recovery, environment, um, amount of time in front of a screen, alcohol, whatever it may be, mm. rather than focusing on what you can't control. Okay, my performance is not exactly where I wanted it in that last game, mm. race, whatever it may be. Um, that's the time you do need the process. But it's the time when emotionally you're potentially least likely to follow it. And that plays into one of the other things I wanted to dig into on your research side is okay so you've you've found these sort of key barrier areas and begun to build the framework that practitioners can use in order to help athletes get through those barriers to identify the barriers for the individual athlete to individualize the approach and the advice so that there's an increased chance of them enjoying the process that benefits their health well-being their performance and everything else but then you were also outlining a series of protocols once practitioners had unearthed okay well we, we think you know this athlete falls into category uh, and you were outlining some sort of a model that then gave them okay if the athlete is in this category you know the suggested approach would be to do you know this that or the other like to help their toolkit could you tell us a little bit more about some of the key implementation tools that you're recommending to, to help engender these behaviour changes? Yeah, no, a really great question and a really big question, actually. So I'll try and, uh, I'll try and break it down. So, yeah, I did mention um, behaviour change techniques earlier. Um, so just to kind of, you know, give the audience a little bit of background to those. So, you know, there's... There was lots of interventions, obviously being being published mainly in the, you know the healthcare literature, um, and lots of different you know techniques and strategies being used you know to bring about change. Um, so the uh, researchers down at the UCL, the University College of London, you know brought together a taxonomy. So basically, try like a bit of a dictionary of okay, what are all the different techniques being used? 
um, let's give them a definition, let's give them a label so we can start to be a bit more consistent in, the, in our language. Um, so we're all kind of um, singing from the same hymn sheet when, you know, when you write up an intervention and you, you, or you talk about a case study, you know, this is what I did. And therefore we're all quite clear on what that means and what that look, what potentially what that looks like. Um, so that's the behaviour change technique taxonomy. So there's 93 um, behaviour change techniques um, available. Well, that's included within that, this taxonomy. Some of which practitioners, you know, are, are probably already using. Some may potentially might not even realise that they are a behaviour change technique. Um, but yeah, I said, yeah, 93 available. And I suppose if I um, share with you kind of from lessons from my personal experience, I think early on in my career and uh, before I started, you know, early on in my research journey anyway, um, I think I'd very, as a practitioner, you very easily fall down the trap of, you know, providing education and and in, in informing the athlete on on how to in, how to perform, how to do the behaviour. That's you know, that's that's the behaviour change technique. It's very information driven, and um, what you need to do and how how you can do it. Um, but by doing that, you know, you're only targeting one thing that one of the factors that influence our behaviour, i.e., knowledge. Um, so quite limited limiting. Um in what we can do and what we should be taught, what should be uh, the approaches we can take. So I, th I suppose, you know, I was just thinking about uh, an athlete more recently, you know, um, I actually teamed up with our psychologist and, and, and used an early draft of my uh, behaviour assessment tool, um, a, very length, a very lengthy draft. It was uh, one, of the first, you know, one of the first ones I put together before getting feedback from a sports nutritionist. And, you know, within that conversation, um, it yeah, you know, she was. She, we've been working with her for a long time, and you know, she was very open and honest and reflective of her own behaviours. And um, she kind of openly admit that, you know, I don't actually really believe in the impact that nutrition would have on my performance because she'd come from a, a skill-based sport um, where she said, you know, previously she'd kind of got away with it. Um, however, now in a very strength-based sport, uh, we knew, however, that potentially wasn't the case. So we, we knew there was a, a bit of a bit of work to, to do there. And then the second one that really came through from that conversation and, and that behavioural analysis, um, so trying to unpick those influences, was um, around the athlete had a really strong um, self-athlete identity. So what that means is... Um, and again, I'm not a psychologist. This is what I've picked up from our psych, and I hope he's, I'm going to make him proud by trying to explain this. But when an athlete has quite a strong um, athlete identity, what it means is their self-worth is kind of in a constant state of flux because they only really value themselves if they're performing well. Um, and we know, obviously, performance is so variable. You know, you're going to have good good performances. You're going to have poor performances. And, and this was impacting on her how she felt about herself, therefore her emotions, um, and then her, and then then meaning her motivation to engage in you know key behaviours around nutrition, but also other disciplines as well. So engagement to psych support, uh, physio, for example. Um, so thinking about then kind of what we then the approach we took with this athlete. So of course there was there was a bit of work to do around um, the edu the education piece and, and informing her on. You know uh, types of foods she needs to consume to to ha have a high protein diet, let's say. Um, but rather than just providing her with you know education on you know what she needs to do, how she can do it, and maybe a bit around why it's important, actually you know trying to persuade the athlete 
so more persuasive types of techniques. And there's a, a really good one called uh, salience of consequences. So this is where you kind of move beyond just providing them education and you try and evoke like an, an emotional response. So what is the consequence if they don't do that behavior and linking it back? So if you have a low protein a diet how much muscle mass would you expect to lose during a given time point and, and drawing on literature to, to to help illuminate that and use context so how many bakes, tins of baked beans does that equate to for example um and you know recently one of the athletes the athletes that i i worked with i you know drawed on a study that looked at a diet an athlete uh, a group of athletes with low protein intake and high protein intake and they're really showing the difference in the impact that they had on their ability to increase lean mass and bringing that to life a little bit. Um, so yeah, so really try to tap into more of that motivational component rather than just education. So I mean, yeah. it, I think the there's a there's a quote I remember. It's a guy called Jim Rohn, and, and it's something like you know, I will butcher the quote slightly, but the point is, it's not the knowledge; it's what you do with it. If it was only knowledge, librarians would be the most powerful people in the world. Um, you know, you have to act on, on that mm -hmm. knowledge. Um, and there's a huge emotional impact in that. So whether people don't think nutrition is important or whatever, if you can make it tangible like that, you're then making that knowledge real. You're giving people something to hang it on. So that idea that, you know, very clearly, because presumably it can feel you know, missing a bit of protein here or a bit of carbohydrate there it doesn't feel like a lot in the course of one day but if it becomes habitual then that compounds in the wrong mm. direction you make that tangible you know your muscle mass will decrease by x this will decrease your power by x therefore your performance is not not going to be there um but understanding because nutrition is, is very much a, a it is a compound approach it doesn't nothing happens suddenly. The only time any nutritional intervention uh, impacts you suddenly is when it's poisoning you. You know, that, that's food mm. poisoning or, or whatever it may be. The benefits to getting it right yeah. compound over time. So you don't go from one day to the next and see a huge change. So being able to make that tangible, because presumably there are athletes who are, I mean, we've heard this from a number of practitioners and it, and it plays out across you know, um, amateur athletes as well. There are a number of people who are engaged in nutrition, interested in nutrition, keen to do it and have the ability. You, know, you almost don't have to worry about those, those guys. You can kind of give them the information or the products or, or the meal plan or whatever and just know that it will be done. But then there's another group who, for whatever reason, are, are going to find barriers. And I really like your plan of that, that way of making that loss, that compound loss into a tangible thing rather than because otherwise it can feel too inconsequential i imagine whereas the long-term effect is huge mm -hmm. so i mean in terms of those five that you know you've got the the recommendations there the outlines i mean are there any other things i mean i realize there's an awful lot more we could <laughs> yeah. run into here and with 93 different techniques yeah. to work with there's an awful lot more um but i mean are there any other things that you wanted to bring out in, in this conversation uh, that we haven't covered yet? 
Yeah, no, I was going to just link it back to the kind of case study I just uh, started to touch upon there is also as a practitioner, I'm a real advocator of, um, you know, giving athletes confidence in their ability to do these things. So it's, that's actually a behavior change technique called verbal verbal persuasion about their capability. Um, so it's more like, and again, the best practitioners I know do this, do this really well is actually um, rather than seeing what the athletes here and I want them to be there and almost like um, creating like, you know, it, it seem unreachable. It's more, you know, don't shy away as a practitioner from giving the athlete praise that they're doing a great job. Um, and it's it's in a way that not to pass judgment on like, oh, well done. I'm really pleased with you. But to in a way to really um, strengthen and reinforce the the positive attributes that the athlete has and that is bringing to this, whether they're shown commitment um, effort uh, and effort and putting the time in to really focus on this and really highlighting that as a positive, positive thing um, to enhance their, you know, belief in their own capability and, and just motivation to engage in the service more, more broadly. Um, so again, I think that's, I, I do that quite a lot of athletes and um, yeah, and I just think that's just really important when working with people as well. Um I'm also a really a big advocator of, um, I mean, it's a, it's kind of clustered into one behavior change technique called social support. But within that, you have types of um, behavioral counseling. Um, so most popular one I'm sure people may have heard of at least is uh, motivational interviewing. Um, so within that, it's rather than having a consultation whereby, you know, you sit in, you ask them, you're the expert, you ask loads of questions and get lots of responses. Actually, your role is more um, to be a passive uh, listener and to evoke change talk by a lot of reflecting on what they're saying. And it's it's more to give the athlete autonomy in their decisions and therefore to come up with their own solutions and you're kind of just guiding and facilitating that uh, and again that's a skill and something I you know I learned about it as my on my undergraduate course um, but something I'm still I consciously have to have to work quite hard at and um, to make sure I'm applying those those key principles um, and I do yeah I do think as a practitioner as well it, it is a skill within that to um, be able to flex your style as well you know you do have athletes you know as you mentioned just then that you know sometimes just want to come in and and be given the information and they just want to just check they just come in and they'll approach you when they've got particular questions that they want to ask and you know you can provide them with information and they're, they're happy to crack on then you've got others that perhaps might need a little bit of reassurance around what they're doing is right um, and then other other ones that perhaps do need that more autonomy supportive kind of guiding process um, so I think it's a real skill to be able to pick up on the type of athlete that you're working with, but then also to be able to then flex your approach to deliver in that way. Um, and something that, yeah, will continue to continue to work on um, as my experience grows within the, within the role. Well, I, I mean, thank you so much for for sharing all of that, because I think it's it's fascinating from an elite point of view. Um but it's also fascinating from any athlete's point of view, amateur or otherwise, because a number of the challenges, whereas they might present slightly differently, the themes of the challenges that elite athletes face in terms of getting their nutrition right and achieving their best results have great similarities to you know what anyone in everyday life would, would be doing in, in terms of trying to engender those changes. And the ability, I think, of your research to make a huge benefit in the professional sphere 
is huge, but the trickle-down effect of that could be even bigger. Again, com compound interest over time. Look, look at what, what, what can this research do today? It's already getting to Olympic athletes, but what can it do over the next five, 10 years? You know, it, I, think, I just think it's brilliant. So thank you so much for, for coming in and sharing that. And, and if people wanted to, whether it's, you know, is there anywhere are you on social media? I think you're, you're on Twitter and a few others, aren't you? Where, where would people best be able to uh, keep in touch with you or, or check out your, your work and latest updates? Yeah, so um, yeah, people can find me on on Twitter, uh, Bentley R N Megan, I believe. Yeah, Bentley R N Megan. Um, we'll, we'll put that one e in the show notes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but then equally, yeah, I know if anybody are, is interested in, in my research, feel free to you know c contact me, and I'm happy to share that. As appreciate, not everyone necessarily always gets access. Um, but, you know, thank you for, you know, a great opportunity to have me on and, and discuss a really exciting topic. But just to say as well, I, I think there's a lot more that, um, that needs to be done in this in this area. And I particularly, what, you know, what I would love to see in the future is uh, having behavior change as part of our core training as sports nutritionist. You know, recognizing that, you know, people in dietetics, for example, they have this, you know, it's, it's part of their core training. Whereas if you come from more of a sports science or sports nutrition background, um, it's not yet necessarily integrated in that program. So making a big call for um, the SCNR, which is our professional body, to actually have that as, as core criteria within their curriculum, because then actually it encourages undergrad and postgraduate programs to uh, include that within within uh, the, the stuff that they, they deliver as well. Um, and also hoping there'd be more training opportunities as well for the profession to start to really think about and unpick um, behavior change um, so they can start to, yeah, add, add more tools to their toolkit and uh, apply that within their roles. But in the meantime, if people, you know, are interested in uh, the behavior change technique taxonomy, you know, there's a great app that the uh, research uh, researchers have put together that allows you to search um, the app and get an understanding of, you know, um, what it is and perhaps how it's delivered. Um, so I'd recommend that as a resource as well. That's great. Do you have a, a link for that we can share? Yeah, um, yeah. You could yeah type in a B, uh, BCT um, taxonomy, I believe, in App Store, um, and that will come up. But yeah, happy to share that information. Brilliant. We will. Uh, I will dig out the link for that and uh, put that one in in the show notes as well. Um, no, we're just just really excited with with the work you're doing and, and you know the the potential for what it can do now, but you know, the long term potential for the benefits that it can bring. And um, just really excited that we're able to talk about this quite literally the moment before you submit the PhD. So <laughs> it, is that exactly your next stop? Is is hang up and go go and get that done? Yeah, so I've got a couple more emails to send, but yeah, that's the, the most important one, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Well, well, look, I mean, what, what a beautiful way to, uh, to spend a Friday. Um, congratulations on, on getting that in. Thank you Thank for, you for sharing, sharing your time and knowledge. And um, ha have a great weekend relaxing and celebrating. Thanks, Ron. It's great speaking to you. You too, Megan. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. Megan Bentley. Give her a great big hand. And uh, remember, you heard it here first, before that PhD even went in. Um, so get out there and uh, enjoy powering up your positive behavior change. And if you're looking to upgrade your sports nutrition as one of your changes, well, don't go anywhere else apart from 33fuel.com. We've put our lives, our hearts, our souls into making the finest 
most high-performing natural sports nutrition you have ever had. Literally, it must be tasted to be believed. And we've got a spread of products, whether you need protein, whether you need energy gels, whether you need daily greens to look after your nutrient intake, uh, whether you need something for when you're properly smashing it in races, um, whatever it may be, energy bars, protein bars, we've got it but they're not formulated like you will find anywhere else because compromise is not a word in our vocabulary, okay? You want compromise, go and get the bargain basement stuff off eBay, do what you will. But we do not cut a single corner. We the best possible ingredients. We use no flavorings. We use no additives. We use no sweeteners. We don't use any processed junk. Everything we make is from the highest quality, best possible real food sources. Um, but what you will find, amazingly, with all that, that whereas you may pay a small premium over regular products for us, it really is a small premium. In fact, if you were to buy the regular products in the shop or order ours online, give or take, the prices are about the same. Plus, we've got a 30-day money-back guarantee and we deliver them to your door in the UK for free. So actually, we saved you that trip to the shop. Anyway, look, check it out. You are in for a treat. I promise you. Look forward to seeing you all at the next show. Thanks for listening.